Strange Phenomena now has a Patreon page. If you would like to support the show, then you can visit patreon.com slash katebushpodcast to see what wonderful rewards we're offering for your support of the show. Thank you. And now, on with the show. When I first heard the dreaming, I it was my least favorite. But over time, as I've gotten older, it's like really grown on me. It's very classic Kate, like a setup, a story, different characters, different emotions, and then something happens and it it goes wrong. But it's just like this really well-crafted atmosphere that she makes in the span of, you know, a three and a half minute song. There are a couple parts of on this song that are like my favorite parts sonically in terms of like instrumentation on the entire album, The Dreaming. So I think Kate Bush is really good at making songs from a cinematic perspective. She's really good at character building and narratives and um, compared to traditional song mm-hmm. writing. And I think this song is a great example of a film plot. And it's unlike her other songs that are very cinematic, where it's like almost otherworldly. This seems like her writing a song about a movie from the 40s based off the Wikipedia blurb of the plot. Welcome to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and this week we're going to be talking about the second track from Kate Bush's album, The Dreaming, called There Goes a Tenor. Okay, remember. Okay, remember. That we have just allowed half an hour to get into it and get out the sense of adventure. With me to talk about the song this week, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Danny. Um, I work in production and marketing at Meet Records, but I also make music under the name Danny Laundry. Oh, um, hi, I'm D or Diego Ortega, and I've been a Kate Bush fan for a couple of years. So, how did you? We've gone back and forth in emails about how you became a fan, but tell the listeners how you became a fan of our lovely British song. Oh, God. So I think I first discovered Kate Bush when I was eight because I was given a I, um, iPod Nano for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Or no, I, I must have been ten, and I had all my dad, dad's music. My music taste started off of his. So from a young age, I really liked the Smiths and Morrissey and the Pixies and you know alternative music. In high school, when I started trying to discover myself, like so, I started got, getting into art rock and art music. I knew who she was, and I heard the stereotypes about Kate Bush. So I was a little skeptical at first, and then something clicked, and I just started like soaking it up like a sponge, you know. So I must have been—I was turning 16 when I knew. Yeah, I think this is my favorite new musician. So I'm in college now, and I I think I know her catalog up and down. And There Goes a Tenor, you said, was one of your favorite songs. So why is There Goes a Tenor one of your favorite Kate Bush songs? It's certainly one of my favorite songs off The Dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, Mine too. I, I don't know. It's just, 
it's really strange. It's so I think Kate Bush is really good at making songs from a cinematic perspective. She's really good at character building and narratives and um, compared to traditional song mm-hmm. writing. And I think this song is a great example of a film plot. And it's unlike her other songs that are very cinematic, where it's like almost otherworldly. This seems like her writing a song about a movie from the 40s based off the Wikipedia blurb of the plot. It's very straightforward. It has her like flares as her language, but it's, you know what's going on, I think. (laughs) (laughs) For the most part, although to be honest, like, I'm, I'm with you. This is one of my favorites off of The Dreaming as well. I was actually right before we started talking, started thinking, okay, so what are, how would I rank the songs from The Dreaming in terms of like my favorites? And I think this one I put number two behind Night of the Swallow because that one's my favorite oh. favorite. Yeah, Night okay. of the Swallow is probably my favorite favorite off of The Dreaming, but this is a very close I, second. Okay, I thought you were going to say another song as your number one. Oh, <laughs> um, and I th- wait. Do you know what I was thinking of? I thought it was going to be sus- um, suspended in Gaza. Oh, because no. that is such a great song. Now that is in the top. Now that is behind. There goes a tenor. Night in the swallow. Night of the swallow. I forgot. That is such a great song. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh my gosh! So I'm really glad to have you on the show today because, of course, we got to talk about that really obscure track, "Kidnapped on a Building Site." <laughs> At least that's yes. what we think the song is called. We don't really know. <laughs> yes, a mysterious, unreleased song. Seriously. But then we're, but today, though, we're going to be talking about an actual album track that was officially released. Yes. <laughs> and a single. Mm-hmm. In which we can, we'll definitely get to because, oh, my goodness, uh, it, quite a bit of little info about all that. So why is There Goes a Tenor one of your favorite Kate songs? When I first heard The Dreaming, I it was my least favorite off The ah, Dreaming, interesting. surprisingly enough. But over time, as I've gotten older, it's like really grown on me. It's very classic Kate, a setup, a story, different characters, different emotions, and then something happens and it, it goes wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> which seems to be kind of a theme. But it, it's just like this really well-crafted atmosphere that she makes in the span of, you know, a three and a half minute song and this really driving story. And there are a couple parts of on this song that are like my favorite parts sonically in terms of like instrumentation on the entire album, The Dreaming. So I think it's, it's pretty, it's a kind of a a unique one, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I, I really, that's why I like it so much. It's grown on me quite a bit. Very interesting that it for you it was your least favorite because for me it was the first one I latched on to. Really? Huh. Mm-hmm. This one and suspended in Gaffa, I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the instrumentation being a little bit simpler and like the, the driving piano in it. I don't know. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Um I feel like this sort of has a never forever feel to it this song mm-hmm. um as opposed to like some of the more you know production heavy songs on the dreaming oh my but, goodness um, yeah <laughs> what actually the first song for me on the dreaming that i latched on to was pull out the pin ah and that's that the was one like, that like i didn't latch on to but yeah. <laughs> interesting it was for you i know yeah we're kind of like opposites yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, but you know, it's, um, it's really good. And like, like I said, like it's kind of in the, the never forever ilk in terms of instrumentation and everything. And I think, which is weird because never forever was probably my first favorite Kate Bush album, but I thought that this was like not doing it for me at first. Mm -hmm. Um, I appreciate it much more now, I think, as I've listened to those albums more and more. So yeah, this song was uh, originally released on The Dreaming, and it was a single. It got released on November 2nd, 1982, so a whole year after the first single, which was Sad in Your Lap, and it did not even chart. Oof. It hurts. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's... um. It's like one of her least successful singles, which is crazy. Um. <laughs> For real. Like, okay, so this thing doesn't really have, you know, it's not driven by a chorus, really. But I thought it was catchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a nineteen eighty view nineteen eighty two interview by Paul Gambaccini on BBC One. Um it's October nineteen eighty two actually. So I think before the single came out. Mm-hmm. But um Paul Gambaccini says, you know, I think this is gonna be a real hit. It's got a lot of oompa to it. And Kate is like <laughs> are you really, I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> like poor Kate feels like defeated, I guess, or mm-hmm. is unsure. And I feel bad because it maybe didn't do as well, but it's still such a, a great song, you know? Many of your tracks you have been writing from the point of view of a third person, not yourself or a lover. For example, in the one, which is going to be a single, there goes a tenor. Uh, you take the perspective of uh, a bank robber in a bank robbery that goes wrong. We're about to see a video of this done with some members of your group and a couple of members of your dance troupe. There goes a tenor. There goes a tenor from the album The Dreaming, and I think that will be a hit, actually. It's got do a lot you, of that oompa. Really? Yes, I think that's... I, that's don't, I don't know anymore. No, no. <laughs> and it was only... It wasn't even... It was um, only released as a single in the UK, I think. UK and mm-hmm. Ireland. And I can see why it didn't chart. It's a strange song, but it's not strange in a way that people... Like, when people think of Kate Bush, they think strange. But th- this is a different kind of strange. It's almost a normal strange compared to the strangeness of other songs. It's not a plain song at all. It's very lush. Like, there's, like... It's very layered, the song. But um, compared to the other songs on The Dreaming, it is not... It's not otherworldly it's like kind of singing a plot off of a classic movie it's not like the other songs on this album where it's like based off the i is wait is get out of my house really based off the shining see i've seen conflicting things about that i'm not sure i'm led to believe that it is and i did watch this the shining for the first time a couple weeks ago and it did kind of have that feel of get out of my house but yeah 
it just doesn't like I don't know. It fits it fits the shining, but I'm not sure if it is completely like I don't ha- I I don't think there's any good proof that it's based off the shining. <laughs> yeah. But no, this one does feel like it it's kind of a an amalgamation of different crime movies. Like if you put like yes. a, a best of film noir or something and you put mm-hmm. it in a blender and you add in Kate Bush being Kate Bush, you get this song for sure. Yes. And but I must say it is one of my favorite songs of the dreaming because of um I know the plot is the plot is like a movie plot, but the language she uses to describe it mm-hmm. is very Kate Bush. And that's what stands out to me. Well, for me, I think part of why this didn't chart is perhaps it's not as immediately catch. I mean, on the one hand, it, it is, it has kind of an upbeat sort of sound, but it's not immediate with, like it's pop hooks, you kind of have to listen yeah. to it a few times for you to realize that there's really no true chorus other than the we're waiting. And that's, of course, not, but everything else, like it kind of goes along and does its own thing. And it also, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of references and things that might immediate people might not immediately know. I didn't know what Jellic Knight was until I did this research. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't either. Um, that and I didn't know what Gaffa was. I thought mm-hmm. so. I thought Gaffa was like so suspended in Gaffa. I didn't know it was being tied up in um, performing tape. I thought it was suspended as in like um, held by authorities in like a town called Gaffa. Like ah. because because the name reminded me of Kashka from Baghdad. Ah. So I I thought oh maybe this is another. And but that was before I like heard the song and it was like that doesn't really make sense with so also I think because you see like her first hit Wuthering Heights is kind of like the song as in it's all over the place mm-hmm. it um doesn't have hooks doesn't have and if so they're not um, conventional hooks and um, it's um, like her other songs that have references. But as this is her first time um, at the helms completely, it's a little different. It's a little, um, it's not a crowd pleaser. Like, Mm -hmm. um, is it bad to say that Wuthering Heights doesn't chart on like my top 10 favorite Kate Bush songs? Absolutely not wrong to say because it doesn't either for me. (laughs) It's. I never recommend it to people starting off. I think it turns people off. Um, it's a gem once you cement yourself as a fan, but I think her works before this album are, I think um, I watched a documentary and it was um, called her vocal techniques, like um, very adolescent and like a gymnast, like a vocal gymnast. This is when it stops being that. Mm-hmm. This is when her voice becomes strong. But 
when you write these songs from the perspective of others, such as the unsuccessful bank robber, do you wait for an inspiration for yourself, or do you accept ideas from others, hey, Kate, why don't you write a song about? Um, I think very rarely people have ever said, you know, hey, why don't you write a song about? But all the time people are just saying things that have happened to them or, you know, feelings, things they're worried about. And I think all the time, ones that move me, that hit me, um, sometime later come out in a song just because I think anything that moves me sufficiently or interests me sufficiently acts as inspiration. This is from Daniel Thomas. In last week's episode, I mentioned that he sent me some extensive essays comparing songs from The Dreaming with their numerical counterpoints in Boys for Pele from Tori Amos. This is what he had to say about There Goes a Tenor. In this song, Kate chronicles a group committing a bank robbery. Since many of the songs are not about her actions, we have to question her motives in choosing to tell this story. Songs go through hundreds of permutations before the final version comes. No artist achieves this without countless hours in the studio. Kate despised this arduous process, as evidenced by Sat in Your Lap. In this song, she celebrates the idea of stealing what she wanted and skipping the middle. Additionally, she would get away with it. She has no problem with the moral question of theft. It's all about the goal. Being angry with herself can certainly lead to rash decisions. There Goes a Tenor serves as a bold example of using musical arrangements to create atmosphere. The song opens with piano notes that sound like thieves tiptoeing through a building. In the We're Waiting break, the music sounds like the butterflies in the thieves' stomachs. Music has five senses, and although their styles are quite different, Tori Amos and Kate Bush provide opportunities to explore all of them. Kate bakes sweets and decorates cakes, each layer of frosting perfectly swirled into the next. No seams show, no crumbs, no burnt spots. Weight, measurement, bake time, Kate obeys it all. She plans and executes every bit of wonder in her songs. She leaves nothing to chance. Tori, however, she is the chef who throws oregano into the bubbles of stew. She knows nothing about timers, cups, or portions. The portrait of a typical song is a large, hefty pot filled with boiling liquid, red and steaming, rising and popping from the top, stains all over the stove, dirty spoon at the ready. She likes the dance of adding a dash of lyric and a fistful of drum. She lets it simmer, smell up the kitchen, waits for it to tell her it's done. These women have much left to say about this chapter, and thankfully we're only two songs into this voyage. There Goes a Tenor is a perfect song to lead us into the more sorrowful record on the dreaming, Pull Out the Pin. Yeah. Well, I get a real feel of this. So, I mean, we've got a basic story of a bank robbery. We've got a bank robbery. Got these bank robbers who've only ever done, I'm guessing, like small jobs, and they're about to do this big heist. Yes. And they're not sure if it's going to go right. They've been practicing it, but they're still afraid things are going to go wrong, and then things do get screwed up. And I get a whole sense of like lock, stock, and two smoking barrels vibe. Honestly, <laughs> like yeah. you get these guys—they're only small, small town criminals. They haven't really done anything big, and then they go to do the big job, and then just. Everything gets screwed up, and especially like in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, the guy, all the criminals are from East London, so they got that Cockney. Yeah, and she puts on a, she definitely puts on a Cockney accent in this. Very song. thick. <laughs> yes, in fact, so thick that oh my god, I had to look. I did not realize what some of the lyrics were in this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Holy crap! Yeah, that, that's understandable. <laughs> Yeah, I like what she said in the uh, the Kate Bush Club newsletter. Like she says, 
Everybody synchronize watches. Remember, there's only half an hour to do the job. We've been rehearsing for weeks and nothing should go wrong. Let's run through it one more time. I go in and distract the guard. Frank's out the back in the getaway car. The sign on the door turns from open to shut. We keep them all covered. You blow the safe up. We grab the cash, make a hasty retreat, and tear across London using the back streets. Remember, be careful. Give nothing away. The arm of the law is as long as they say. I love that. It's like a little extra liner note, you know, for the Mm -hmm. album. Like that whole um, newsletter, how she gives background for everything, but... Oh, yeah. She doesn't she doesn't actually give any like recording background like she did for um, Night of the Swallow. She just gives us like a little vignette and it's very classic Kate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what are some of your favorite kind of either lyrical or production moments kind of speaking about that stuff? When it comes to music, I'm a lyric person. I mean, I do love uh, beats and sounds and everything, but I don't I'm not an expert on that. But. I am a former AP literature and AP um, composition student, so okay. I'm very I'm good with I'm good with English. <laughs> um, cool. I'm good with lyrics. I'm good with. Um, and what appeals to me about her music is the story element, the storytelling, the the almost mythological components, the film, like how she sets up a song, the beginning, the conclusion, uh, like the um, changes. What I love about this song is it's almost it's a dream. It's it sounds like a dream. Like you have like she's talking about the crime and then um then all of a sudden she's singing as if she just woke up and she doesn't know what's going on and there, she's covered in rubble uh, and she's worried that she's been um ratted out and she doesn't know what's going on. And it's like so is this song from is this an untrustworthy um narrator we're talking mm. about is this a one set is this one set event or is it reality versus dream there's a lot of uncertainty in the song and it's very um appealing you have a lot of uncertainty in other songs after this like the whole ninth um wave kind of um goes back and forth and this experiments were going back and forth in one song instead of um, Checks with the six songs later on. And I feel like the story has such a like crime movie feel to it, especially when she's, she says, uh, you're Bogart, he's George Raft, Cagney and me, mm-hmm. and Edward G. Like the old actors and everything. I mean, yeah. a lot of her music is very much influenced by film, and you can tell like she has a very cinematic kind of scope on the song with the lyrics and everything. It's great. It's like a mini adventure. <laughs> Seriously. And I had to look up. Uh, I did not realize she was even saying George Raff, speaking of like the actors. I had no idea that's what she was saying there. I, it sounds like he is judgment. Yeah. <laughs> just, I didn't. I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> to treat the jellic night tenderly for me. I'm having dreams about things not going right. It's leaving plenty of time to. I actually misheard another lyric, too. She says, um, treat the gel ignite tenderly. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what gel ignite was, which now it makes sense. Like, oh, gel that ignites. But I always thought that the lyric was um, treat the an- angelic knight, like a knight in armor that's angelic, mm-hmm. which is like very poetic and very within the realms of Kate lyrics. 
-hmm. but it kind of made me like have that image in my head which I felt very it was very cute um, but gel ignite makes more sense Yeah, and in fact, I had to look up that up. It um, it is a high explosive made from a gel of nitroglycerin and nitrocellulose and a base of wood pulp and sodium or potassium nitrate, used particularly for rock blasting. There you go, <laughs> blow up the safe. <laughs> yeah, so we blow the safe up. I figured it was something kind of like it, like dynamite or something like that. Like oh, right. She's talking about oh, we blow the safe up. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, Georgia. But obviously, you know, Humphrey Bogart, Hollywood actor, Casablanca, The Maltese Falcon. I've seen both those movies. Pretty cool. Film noir. Yeah, George Raft was an American film actor and dancer identified with portrayals of gangsters and crime melodramas in the 1930s and 40s. A stylish leading man in dozens of movies. Today, Raft is mostly known for his gangster roles in the original Scarface. By the way, with Scarface, I only think about the Al Pacino version. Yeah, <laughs> same here. <laughs> uh, Each Dawn I Die and Some Like It Hot as a dancer in Bolero and a truck driver in They Drive by Night. Very fitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Cagney, um, she, you know, that leaves Cagney and me. James Francis Cagney Jr., July 17th, 1899 to March 30th, 1986, was an American actor and dancer... Primarily known in movies, uh, known for his consistently energetic performances, distinctive vocal style, and deadpan comic timing, he won acclaim and major awards for a wide variety of performances. He's best remembered for playing multifaceted tough guys in films such as Public Enemy, Taxi, Angels with Dirty Faces, and White Heat, finding himself typecast or limited by this reputation early in his career. See, that's really interesting because it adds depth and kind of makes you see the different films that Kate probably saw and had influenced by, you know, you know, it's like those, those little snippets that give you insight into like the actual songwriting, which is interesting. And then uh, Edward G is Edward G. Robinson. Again, another film actor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If we didn't know already that Kate loved her movies, there you go. Yes. So many references. And I never knew that that was a lyric either. I, I thought it was like police chatter for a long time until I looked it up recently and I was like, oh, it's actually a reference to an actor. That I know. Makes sense. <laughs> I think we both had <laughs> lyrical difficulties in the song. Oh, I always did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Kate, you and your your accent. <laughs> I don't know if I love that part. Really? I love I mean, I'm when people when people that I know think of references, they think of me. I like speaking in references, but it just doesn't really cl- like. I think references at this part would be it's essential, but I don't think it congeals well with the transitions at this point because this is the center of the song, and it has two transitions, like the transition into this and the transition into the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I don't think. Um, it just it would need better explaining because I get it like referring to actors who in um, film noirs but maybe it's just because I wasn't raised on film noir like I don't know what other than Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon I don't know what Bogart's 
been in or his characters were like i don't know i don't know who edward g is i don't um so i don't know like the context of the characters that they are supposed to like the character trait i like i assume that all of them were actors it's just yep. I, these like i think she puts them there because oh hey these um actors always p- played certain characters maybe she's referring to them as them because of their character traits. Yep, she is. Um, so maybe Ho- Bogart is the charismatic George Clooney character. I don't know. Um, also, I don't think Bogart, like um, name-dropping Humphrey Bogart translates well into songs because did you know that, and I learned this from another podcast, um, that... Um, the famous song Escape, the Pina Colada song. Um, instead of Do You Like Pina Coladas, it was almost, um, instead of Pina Coladas, it was going to be Humphrey Brogart. Like, name dropping <laughs> that. Oh my God, I did not know that. Holy crap. And in both ways, like, it doesn't really work well. No. Do you like Humphrey Bogart? <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. Yeah. Um,. Now George Raft, I mean, I I was kind of with you. Like I had, I knew who Humphrey Bogart was, but George Raft, I had no idea who he was. He was known for, uh, he was known for portraying gangsters. Okay, um, yeah. He's mostly known today for being in the original Scarface. He was also in Some Like It Hot. Um, okay. Each Dawn I Die was another movie. Um, he was a truck driver and they drive by night, 1940. Like you, I'd never seen any movies with him. So like, okay, well, I guess it's an actor. So she's supposed to be kind of like a tough gangster type. We got, oh, we got the job sussed. Yeah. That's another very British kind of colloquialism. Yeah. <laughs> sussed. <laughs> and the way she sings it, the job sussed. <laughs> Very exaggerated. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I think I thought that it was, um, we, we've got the jobs, jobs, us or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to make out. <laughs> I mean, it's us is, uh, it, it's a British word for realize or grasp it originated in the 1930s as an abbreviation of suspect or suspicion, apparently. Oh, I had no idea of that until about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've heard like suss it out, like kind of check and mm. see if things are okay. I've heard it in that context, but you generally don't hear it like you have something sussed, you know. I guess great lyrics though. I think a very lyrically packed, like many other songs on the Dreaming, lyrically packed song. <laughs> with me and film, like I don't know. I'm not good with gold, like so-called golden Hollywood, and I'm not. Sh- I'm not good with mainstream film as of recently. I like to watch, try to get into art house film and just like stay in that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I did, I do see a lot and I, this is not the only song and I know this person is a a great um, influence, um, but I see a lot of Hitchcock in this. Hmm. And I'm starting to get into Hitchcock. Hitchcock, and I know Hitchcock is important um, to um, some of her songs, as like um, Hounds of Love, 
mm-hmm. is based off like the music video is based off a Hitchcock film, and they have someone portray Hitchcock doing a cameo. Ah, I'll have to watch that again. I'll have to watch that. I did not know that. Um. Yeah, because in 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 heist movies, the heist usually goes off well, and everyone um, is off for the better because of it most of the time. But with Hitch, I think so. I'm not sure. With Hitchcock, um, he takes normal human um, situations and makes them into allegories about. Um, what makes us human and mm-hmm. how fear is um, derived from the base, the most basic hu- um, hu- human um, instincts and uh, concepts. And this is something that doesn't go well because of these characters' um, faults. They're, they're, um, they're portrayed as not like used to what they're doing now and, they have they have problems, um, so it's not like um, classic hikes movies where oh they're so cool oh Patrick Swayze is is cool they're wearing present mm-hmm. that they're they're gonna like it's gonna be awesome it's not like that. What's going to be the next single that you're working on? Um, well, we've done the video for the next one, which is There Goes the Tenor. Sorry? There Goes the Tenor. There go- now, what's that about? Is it about robbery? Yeah. What, yeah. sort of pickpockets in the East End, etc.? Yeah. It's about amateur robbers who have only done small things. And this is not quite a big robbery, but they've been planning for months. And when it actually starts happening, they um, start freaking out. They're really scared. and They're so aware of the fact that something could go wrong. They're, they're just freaked out and paranoid and want to go home. Really? Is it, is it based on any kind of film? No, it's sort of... All the films I've seen with robberies in, the crooks have always been incredibly um, in control and calm. And I always thought that if I ever did a robbery, I'd be really scared, you know, I'd be really worried. Just, so I thought, I'm sure that's a much more human point of view. Yeah. Was a, you see, the thing was, I thought it might be based on a film. It was on telly over Christmas. It was about a guy that was blackmailed into doing a robbery. And, uh, of course, he really was scared. And the, the further he got, he got sort of involved in it, you know, he had to carry it out. Right. But he was having the sleepless nights and stuff. And then, well, how did he get blackmailed? Because he'd murdered someone. He'd been in prison a long time. Right. And That's therefore, true. when the robbery took place, you know, like the uh, the mafia bosses who were organising it knew they had a stool pigeon. Wow. And so they, they got him to do it. Right. Yeah, similar sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sure like, a lot of these young kids, when they actually get into a situation where it is, you know, not just a little job, it must be really scary. Yeah. <laughs> what, what made you think about it? I mean, are you sort of... Have you run, it, run into these East End types before? Or? No, no, I think it's much more the thing of watching a lot of films. and I mean, things like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, there's lots of films where robberies take place. And yet, they're glorifying 
they always make the robbery something very heroic and, and fun and risky and dangerous. And but for me, it's something incredibly um, scary, you know, something that has such a potential of going wrong that it's, it's not worth the risk. And I don't think it's something that should be glorified at all. I think it's something that should be made very real so right. that people realise that it's it's not worth the effort. Yeah. It's not something that's, you know, fun. It's something that's just not worth the effort. It's going end up in jail for bloody years. I know. I just... I also love watching heist movies. I really do. That's just some of my <laughs> most favorite movies to watch like, oh, yeah, with my husband. Sure. And I like that in this song that she's portraying these bank robbers as bum kind of bumbling idiots. I almost almost think of like Horace and Jasper from the 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, like um, one of them, Rabble, needs mummy, mm-hmm. like rabbling, like crying. Mm. he's like oh god this is just so scared (laughs) (laughs) exactly and it's great because if i were a bank robber i'd be doing the same thing And there's a I, quote from Kate where she says that, you know, I would probably be an idiot. And I know I would be. I'm just like, oh, what are we doing? Ah! Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and I yet, think that it adds like a layer of almost like realism, like serious kind of feel for everyone. Like, oh, man, they just screwed up and are in jail forever. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in you get like one of my absolute favorite movies is Ocean's Eleven, the new version. Yeah, yeah. And seeing that one, they're just, they're so cool about how they're planning, how yeah. they're going to rob these casi- all these casinos on a game night. <laughs> and they're just so cool about it and everything goes so well. And I think there might have been one part toward the end when they, they a couple of them were like, oh, I don't know if we're actually going to be able to crack this safe or not. But other than that, they were just so cool and calm. And yet in this in this song, like, no, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, it seems like they planned it very like haphazardly. And like in Ocean's Eleven, you know, everyone has a different role, like mm-hmm. the hacker and the brains and this and the that. And here it kind of just seems like everyone doesn't really, like, someone's driving, but, you know, please be careful and don't do anything wrong. Like, it just seems like they're all kind of confused and <laughs> and scared. But I think that's interesting because, because that's such a common thing in heist movies that everyone is cool and collected and, like, knows what they're doing. And you never hear the perspective of, like, I don't think this is going to work and I'm really scared and it doesn't work. (laughs) Like that never happens because you want to see the heist go well. You don't want to see the hero lose. Unless you get something like the original Ocean's Eleven where, oh, oops, they end up burning the money at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Oopsie daisy. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) But even then, yeah. happy ending. Even that, yeah, you don't really, you don't get them they they make crime look like it's a really cool thing to do (laughs) right right yeah and here it's a very scary thing that doesn't work out so yeah for me like the up through um the verse about 
I mean, I get, you know, I've been here all day, star and strange ways, apart from a photograph, look at nothing for me, not until they let me see my solicitor. Okay, so they've done, they've done the crime, something's gone wrong, and maybe they're sitting in the police station getting questioned. How do you interpret the ending? Like, the last couple verses honestly feel like, okay, where are we going? What? Huh? Right, right. What are your thoughts on that? Well, okay, so the third verse where they blow the safe up, but they're caught. Mm-hmm. Um, the government will never find the money, and then they're actually caught. I've been here all day, a mm-hmm. star in strange ways. And strange ways is a um, poli- uh, a prison, I believe, in Manchester. Yep. So it's like, it kind of looks bleak, like reference to prison, or like, I'm not going to talk until you see my lawyer, but they're caught, and they were caught red-handed. So that's why I think it shifts into the outro, the end end verse, where it's like they're thinking about it in like a nostalgic way. They're reminiscing like the really nice weather and all the money floating in the wind. Like, I'm not sure if it's a fantasy or if it's just like a misremembering of the job that went wrong um, because of the money kind of blown up. I think like the rich windy weather when you would carry me pockets floating in the breeze like it sounds very nice and I think it's more of like kind of a fantasy of um maybe things going right and in the music video I think they're like running through the streets so it kind of makes you imagine that she's sitting in in prison and thinking about how things might have gone right you know how it would have been if they had escaped with all the money back in you know the old days (laughs) yeah and of course, since she finally mentions the the title, Oh, There Goes a Tenor, as in a 10, probably a 10 pound, Dollar or pound. sorry, 10 <laughs> pound bill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there goes a tenor. Hey, look, there's a fiver. There's a 10 shilling note. Remember them? That's when we used to vote for them. Makes me think, I guess, kind of like what you were saying. I got like, it's her kind of dreaming. And maybe they were just so happy they just threw the money all up in the air. Right. Yeah. Like, they're running away with it. And it, they have so much that it's just, like, going in the in the breeze beyond them, which is sad. <laughs> and, like, you know, like in the music video, it seems, it seems much nicer, I think, than the reality where they, you know, were totally caught red-handed. I've never quite been able to figure out the ending of the song like whether it is uh, one person i talked to um for about this song uh, a couple weeks ago said that they think of it the, the ending like oh i remember that rich windy weather when you would carry me pockets floating in the breeze oh there goes a tenor yeah. hey, look there's a fiber like it's they're imagining like being they're out of jail or they're imagining when oh. they had another kind of heist that they did that went a little bit better I thought I, it was a heist as well. Yeah, I, I, this whole thing is a heist or bank robbery or whatever you want to call it. It's an Ocean's Eleven type movie, except that it's... It would be perfect in um, Ocean's Eleven. Actually, it would be. And I do like that she's kind of humanized these burglars. I mean, yeah, of course, they're, oh, they're, yes. they're criminals, but she's portrayed them as like these bumbling guys. And yet in every crime movie, I mean, we were just talking about Snatch and Lockstock, Took a Smoking Barrels or Ocean's Eleven. And some of those other movies, the guys are very like slick and they know what they're doing and everything goes to plan. And they're just like, yeah, this is what we do instead of like, well, but 
aren't you going to be a little scared at all? Like you're about to pull off a big crime here. Yeah. And, and, and she's like, she's like the George Clooney character. It's like in charismatic, but with, if the character, his character in um, Ocean's Eight was just made super humanistic, like very faulty. Like I think Kate Bush puts a lot of charisma into character building <laughs> and she, mm-hmm. Um, she take, adds it to this character as a lot of um, faults, like, um, and that that line about her being carried, um, mm-hmm. it's very like she um, she never she never really wrote songs about herself, right? Like, nope. Like a lot of people think the songs are about her, but they're she's just really good at character making. But in this song, I kind of imagine her, it's her. It's like the music video. It's like her and um, some very um, bumbly guys. Yeah, like each line is kind of packed with, with a different image or a different person, or like, especially when yeah. she name drops. <laughs> name dropping, man. Yeah. Um, and she kind of does, um, she kind of uses, I think she is using double entendres. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite lines is, um, and this is, is it right if I talk about like the ending of the song right now? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we totally can. Yeah. We're, okay. This is kind of in the, the section of like general lyrics and production sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, or, oh God. Um, a star in strange ways, um, <laughs> saying that she's, she's kind of like, it's like, she's going to be, um, notorious also. Strange Ways is, I believe, a prison in Manchester. Yep. So a star in Strange Ways, as in she's going to be one of the the the, the key um, like um, cri- criminals in um, in Strange Ways. Yeah, and there's also think- a lot of um, there's also a lot of like little asides in the lyrics, like um, when she does some of the name dropping. He's George Raff that leaves Cagney and me, and there's what about Edward G. Like you yeah. don't even realize that's there until you go look up the lyrics. Um, I do like that that part. I I like when she experiments um, with callbacks. Uh, I mean, I don't think this will. I think Waking the Witch kind of has like talking to another person. Like, um, but when I think of Kate Bush and callbacks, I think of Constellation of the Heart. Mm. And this is kind of like they kind of seems like i think uh, this song is very interesting because it's her it's her uh, mature career this is a stepping stone to everything after like yep. you can see um just parts of the song and her hits and her like very um important works it, it dates back like this is um when emi is starting to give her full control this, I mean, I, I know why this album kind of flopped. It's because um, she was starting to mature, but this was her first time on her own. Mm-hmm. And this song is an example of why it didn't chart is because it has little bits of um, elements of all of her charting songs after, but it's all it's all premature. It's all half-baked. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this was kind of the album where she went, oh, I've got the fair light and I'm just going to let my imagination loose and put in everything but the kitchen sink. Maybe even the kitchen sink on a, on part of a song, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, she hasn't kind of learned to kind of edit it, a little edit it, you know what I mean? But, I mean, um, and about Constellation of the Heart, um um without the pain there would be no learning i mean this was uh i think this mm. was an album that took an emotional toll on her she um shut herself off from media f- until 1985 for, so like three years but what we what she made after this i mean hounds of love is such an important album and i think we wouldn't have had it unless we had this album and primarily a few songs this is one of them this suspended in Gappa, Night of the Swallow. Um, I think leave it open and um, get out of my house. I think the, um, but you see, like um, this song is really interesting because you you see, um, like there will be little snippets. It's like, oh, this sounds like this song. After that comes after this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, that's why I love it. This was from uh, an interview in Keyboard, Totally Wired, Songwriter Magazine, a American publication from 1985. She says, that was written on the piano. I had an idea for the tune and just knocked out the chords for the first verse. The words and everything just came together. It was quite a struggle from there on to try to keep things together. The lyrics are quite difficult on that one because there are a lot of words in quite a short space of time. They had to be phrased right in everything. That was very difficult. Yeah. It makes me wonder if that little vignette that she had in the home ground, that home ground issue, maybe those were like demo lyrics or something before she kind of fixed them because of the, you know, the fact that they rhyme. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can imagine that it was very hard to get the structure right, especially with like the pre-choruses and then the choruses, like all my words fade, what am I going to say? Like it kind of, it, it is a lot. It's like suspended in gaffa, which kind of oh, leaves God. you breathless in between the verses. You know, there's a lot she packs in. So I can totally imagine that this took quite a bit of tweaking. But even though production wise, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, you got you got the drums, got her old friend Stuart Elliott, her boyfriend Del Palmer playing bass. Um, yeah. She's playing the Fairlight and the piano and the Yamaha CS80 for um, as far as keyboards go and the Synclavier from Dave Lawson. But I mean, actually, production wise, it's a pretty simple song. Yeah, well, I can tell that she got the brass um, from the, the Yamaha CS80. I remember reading in under the Ivy that that was like kind of um, the it, the brass also in the demo for sat in your lap was CS 80, but she couldn't get it right on the recorded version. But, um, she really liked the brass noises on that synthesizer at the time. And the Synclavier is kind of a, it's a little similar to the Fairlight and I think it's sample based. It's also a synthesizer that was new at the time that was, it was famously used in, um, 
beat it in the intro that done done that's a sing clavier oh, demo oh i did not know that yeah it's a really cool instrument and um you know michael jackson used it thomas dolby used it it was a part of the hardware of the time and um that's what what's used in the in the we're waiting part that kind of like atmospheric synth that comes in and out uh it's mm-hmm. i love that oh i love that, that part too that is like well, that's the part that I mentioned, like sonically on the album is like one of my favorites because it so perfectly and en- like encapsulate the anticipation that they're feeling and the anxiety, like we're waiting and it, it like ebbs and flows mm-hmm. in that way. And the, the synclavier sounds amazing. Super dreamy, super lush, such a, such a cool moment. <laughs> Is that the video you were shooting in the train carriage on the way to Manchester? That was, or the, one we, for it? That was the one we were practicing for, yes. Really? But only because we didn't have any time. Because that show came up at the last minute. Right. And we were planning to rehearse all that night, so instead of doing it in the studio, we did it in the back of the train. Like <laughs> <laughs> and how, how many of you were there, sort of, in, in that guard's van? They were just the three of us. They cleared it out for us. It was really great of them, actually. What, you each station we stopped at, there'd be various guards who'd call the window down and go, right then, because <laughs> they're just checking us out. And it's great, they include all the posts and chickens and pigs and all the things. Really? <laughs> and they you just, get some odd things, don't yeah. you? So it was completely empty carriage, it was beautiful. The only thing was, we could hardly he- hear the tape recorder, because the noise was so bad. Right. So we were more or less having to sort of keep checking the... I mean, it was very hard to stay stationary at 150 miles an hour. And that and that and that's that kind of dance somehow can get incorporated to a film about a robbery. Yeah. That should be interesting. See, um, like the, one of the bits in the song is all about waiting, and how um, at, like the first time they're just waiting for something to go wrong, and the second time they just start waiting for the guy to blow the safe up. Because when he blows it up, there's so much that could go wrong. It's like a dance routine. It's like based on waiting. And so it's it's, it's like this sort of thing where it's like you know just all these ideas of people waiting. And the rest of the dance is more in uh, acting out what the story says. Really, it's not, not so much a dance at all. Did, did this one's going to be more successful than the last one? I don't know. I don't know what to um, think about singles anymore. Was it was it your idea for it to be a single? What, There Goes a Tenor? Mm. Yes, I think um, I was um, in full agreement with them. And I think I've reached a stage where, because the dreaming didn't work, we all felt, especially from an airplay point of view, that in order to get airplay, which you need for a single sure. to work, that we should go for one that was more obvious. And... Um, there's no doubt that there goes to ten years one of the more obvious songs. Not that, not that there are a lot on the album that are obvious. No. So we're just going for this and see what happens. So what do you think of the music video? 
I really like the music video. It's so great. I mean, Kate's look is top notch, like with the hair back and the makeup looks perfect. And I really like the dance. I think she said it was like kind of made short notice or, but I think it's, it's really fun kind of seeing them act it, act it out, like pantomiming the robbery, which feels very like silent film era or like, you know, I know how she liked miming. So it's very fitting. <laughs> very old school Kate. So what do you think of the music video for this song? Cause I, I, I like the music video. I feel like it's, I like it. It's pretty, pretty literal. Really. <laughs> it goes it's, with the song. Yeah. That's, that's the little, that's the only little thing is compared to other music videos, but um, it's, it's literal. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't take you into another world, but I do like it. I, and um, I think the people with her in that music video aren't those, um, like, the dancers from, like, the Tour of Life? Mm-hmm. And the Dreaming... And the, the Dreaming title song, yeah. But the music video director was somebody named Paul Henry. He also did the music video for the title track. Um, initially for that one, she was interested in a director of Hawk the Slayer, Terry Marcel, to direct the video, but he wasn't interested, okay. so he suggested Paul Henry instead. And that's... and Oh, on the next video, there goes a tenor. Henry was under strict instructions from EMI to draw in the reins, because at that time, they had done the, the Dreaming music video, and it hadn't done very well. Um, before they began, okay. he told Bush that it had to be made much more in the manner of a conventional video. We need to shoot this in the standard way, you told her. Cover it in a wide shot, then go in for a two-shot, mid-shot, and close-up. So we have the ability to cut it conventionally, and it will have a better chance of being shown on television, which presumably was the point of the exercise. Quote, I don't think she liked that, he says. So after that one, she employed everyone that I had employed on There Goes a Tenor, except me. She had my art director, my set directors, dressers, my cameramen, wardrobe people, everyone but me, because she didn't like the fact that I tried to be more in control of it. Most creative people want complete oh, control. Yeah. <laughs> on one hand, it was a gift to be able to work with her. On the other hand, she was heading in a direction that wasn't going to be commercially successful. Both the films I oh. made didn't get a huge amount of spo exposure. Indeed, that's an understatement. There Goes a Tenor is the least successful single of Bush's career, played and seen virtually nowhere, primarily due to the song. The video is perfectly fine. As ever, there were no great scenes, no falling outs. Neither Henry nor Wiseman have a bad word to say about Bush personally. And you suspect would have leapt at the chance to work with her again. For her part, she remained resolute in her belief that she had to follow her vision, resolving better to do it next time, which is yeah. what she did. And unfortunately, I really wish that it had been, I guess, released as with uh, with her other video with... Um, the whole story compilation because it was a music video made for a single oh it wasn't included no it wasn't oh wow i know but you can see it on youtube <laughs> yeah <laughs> well uh, yeah now it's a little different it has like a million youtube views but back in the day i think that's when it you know kind of counted more because you couldn't just search it on youtube yeah so i think they just she probably didn't feel great about it i mean it's sad because it didn't perform very well and it's such a great song and the b-side is like my favorite kate bush song mm -hmm. ever and so, one of mine definitely 
yeah, so it's like it's even more sad because it's like ugh, it could have been a more known B side. It's still a great video, and I think it's a great song. I think the video is more visually engaging than the dreaming video. I feel like the dreaming video I, I've watched less than the, there goes a tenor because it follows the story. And well, and this one really is more more cinematic, and it works yeah. with the. Right. The, all the film references that she's made and the structure of the song. Exactly, yeah. It is very cinematic, so it's fun to watch. And Dell is in it as the driver, which is fun, too. It reminds me a little bit of, for some reason, the ending of uh, Experiment 4, when she's, like, going in the, the helicopter, I think, or the building, and she's, like, shushing them. It kind of reminds me, like, you know, criminal whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it feels very similar kind of like the wink wink so the problem with this music video is i love it but it's commercial and mm-hmm. it doesn't really it's too literal it's too like yes it is <laughs> um and of course um i think kate bush has a lot of similarities with prince um as in creative control she she like prince goes on to direct her mm-hmm. own music videos, and those are some of the best K-Bush music videos. And I think in this case, K-Bush um, really wanted control. Yep. Um, and she didn't direct this video. Like, I feel like if she would have directed it, it would have gotten a little more airplay. But then again, it's the song that made it um, non-commercial in the first place. So I didn't know about this until right before we started talking. I did not even realize that she performed the song on TV. Yeah, she did. Like once. Yeah, it was just one time, one time, one time. You know, she did this <laughs> on Razzmatazz. Yes, that makes sense. Um, and I love it because the outfits are great. Um me and, and my friend Zoe, who has been on this podcast before, mm-hmm. we love how her hair looks in this certain performance. Like it's, it's very, it's just so eighties. It's so great. Oh All um, <laughs> oh, the hairspray in the world went to her oh, hair. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Especially in the dreaming and hounds of love. But um, it's so great. And she wears the suspenders and they do like this totally unique dance routine because they only did it once. And I think that's like kind of a special little tidbit in Kate history that not many people know. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I know. <laughs> and it's it makes sense that she only did it once, considering it was not a very successful single, um, as opposed to other singles where she performed quite a few times. Um, but that's what makes it so interesting and rare. Um, it's a great performance, and it has her two dancers uh, Stuart Avon Arnold and Gary, what's it? Gary Hurst. Gary Hurst. Yes. Thank you. I like that it was on a kid's show. Yeah. And she did that for sat in your lap too, mm-hmm. for that video. It's very interesting. Um, cause honestly, like watching her on this kid's show, 
she seems more relaxed than when she's talking with the adults. It's just like she's not talking down to the kids at all. She's just herself. Like, oh, and when like when they're asking her how she comes up with her music videos and she's explaining the storyboarding and she's not going, oh, well, I'm talking to a five-year-old. I need to talk to them like they're a five-year-old. Instead, it's just, right, right. hey, you're a little human. I'll talk to you like you're human. <laughs> yeah, no, she's so sweet and like, yeah, not condescending at all. Just like very much like, yes, this is my process. This is how I do things. Um, I think just a testament to how sweet of a person she probably is. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I love her very much. <laughs> Same here. Otherwise, I wouldn't yeah. be doing this podcast, man. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. <laughs> but yeah, I, it is interesting, I guess, around that time that she was booked on that children's show a bit, um, especially considering how dark, I guess, the dreaming overall is and sat in your lap and there goes a tenor are not exactly like kids songs. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting, but you know, I'm sure wherever she could get an opportunity, she would take it for the most part. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> well, and considering how the dreaming was doing at this point, I mean, she kind of, she needed to get out there and push a little bit. Yeah, of course. I'm sure the record company was very much pushing for promotion, considering, like, it's not doing great, Kate. Come on. <laughs> um, which is sad, because, like, I mean, I'm sure at the time it seemed very discouraging, um, but it's such a great album and totally innovative. And I think a lot of people have realized that as time has gone on. And, yep. you know, it's a, I think it's a lot of people's favorite album, Kate Bush album now which is great. Well, it's certainly my favorite. Same here. <laughs> well, I think we pretty much covered everything for uh, There Goes the Tenor. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great talking about it. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, of course, as always. Thank you for having me. I mm -hmm. love to talk about Kate. <laughs> yes, me too. That's why I have the show. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to talk to you about There Goes a Tenor. Yeah, great, to talk. great talking to you about it. If you have a favorite Kate Bush song or even a couple of songs that you would like to talk about on a future episode, or if you know something about this week's song that we didn't get to in our discussion, you can find me on the web at kbcast.linkmedia.com. That's link with an E. You can email me kbcast at linkmedia.com. Again, that's link with an E. You can find me on Twitter at strangekatecast and also on Facebook, facebook.com slash katebushpodcast. Also, Strange Phenomena now has a Patreon page. To check out exclusives that I'm offering to you guys for your support of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash katebushpodcast. There you'll find exclusives like access to episodes before they're released and an exclusive subscriber feed called Deeper Understanding where I get to sit down with Kate fans for general Kate Bush chats. This month I'm talking with Sean Toomey, the webmaster of katebushnews.com. There was very few 
decent sites around that time. Most of them were just sort of picture galleries and sort of, um, mm. they all had names like Under the Ivy and um, uh, I don't know. They, there was none of them kind of, uh, there was nothing. I wanted to go to a website that was kind of like Homebrand magazine, which I had been subscribing to for years. And uh, I wanted it to be factual. I wanted it to be informative, but I wanted it to kind of respect Kate as just a, a contemporary artist. For access the, to this and other exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash Kate Bush podcast and subscribe today. Join us for a discussion of the third track from The Dreaming, which will be coming out next week, which is also going to feature the guy whose essays I've been reading on the last two episodes, Daniel Thomas. He is going to join us for a discussion of Pull Out the Pin. See everybody then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.